um, talking about some issues that 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 raise. We've been making our way through 1 Corinthians for the better part of a year now almost, I guess, six months, seven months, something like that. I don't even know how long it's been, but we've been in it a while. And we've been walking through um, various church challenges that the book of Corinthians gives us. And the, the fifth challenge that we've been considering was the challenge of worship, which begins in chapter 11 and moves through chapter 14. And a couple of weeks ago, um, I preached on a, a kind of an overview sermon of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 to 14, and we just talked about the way in which the Corinthian church was selfishly using their gifts and how that was Paul's main burden for the church was to learn how to exercise those gifts in a loving way, in a way that builds up the church and not some way that draws attention to themselves or their giftedness. And as we read through these chapters, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we encounter many things that raise obvious questions. Paul talks about gifts like prophecy and tongues and gifts of healing and miracles. And it, it obviously raises a question, well, what are we to think about those sorts of gifts? What are we to think about the gift of tongues? What are we to think about the gift of prophecy? What are we to think about the gifts of miracles and healings and things of that nature? So what I'm going to try to do in, over the course of three sermons is answer some of those questions about what I'm calling miraculous or revelatory spiritual gifts. I'll get into the definitions of those things in a moment. Um, my outline this morning is, is we're going to talk about the way in which we approach this topic of spiritual gifts, miraculous spiritual gifts, the way that um, people analyze it from various angles, and the way I sort of answer those things. Now, this, I will, I will warn you, this sermon will probably go a little bit longer, and it'll be a tad bit more intellectual, okay? And the reason being that is it's going to be a little bit light on application, but what I'm trying to do in this sermon is orient us to the, to, to the whole Bible's way of thinking about the subject of miracles, and bringing that to bear on how we read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So, it, so I want you to hang with me. I'm going to try to review as we go quite a bit, but it, it requires a little bit of thinking, and it requires us to kind of enter into this discussion with, um, with our fullest mental faculties there. So I, I, I'm challenging us and encouraging you to do that and ask the Holy Spirit to give that energy and focus to you as we work through this subject together. So the first point, which is going to be a little bit of a lighter point, I want to talk about how we approach the issue of miraculous gifts. And I've got three things I want to say about that. First of all, the reason for this series. The reason for this series. Now, I've already described this a little bit, so I'll be brief. In our journey through 1 Corinthians, we have come to chapters 12 through 14 that raise a number of questions regarding spiritual gifts, especially those that we might call the revelatory or miraculous variety, prophecy, tongues, gifts of healing, etc., it seems wise for us as a church to pause and briefly discuss these issues since they inevitably raise questions. Chief among them, what's the place of such miraculous gifts in the church today? Does the office of apostle, the function of prophecy, and the phenomenon of tongues largely cease after the last apostle goes off the scene or continue until the second coming of Christ? So the key question often boils down to the continuation of these gifts or not. So that's the reason for the series. Secondly, the positions in the church at large. The answer to that question has largely put the church into two different camps. The two camps were at one time, and perhaps in some ways still are referred in this way, as charismatic and non-charismatic. Now, I don't like that label because all Christians, in one sense, are charismatic, regardless of their stance on the presence of miraculous gifts. 
All Christians believe in the Holy Spirit. All Christians believe in spiritual gifts. All Christians possess spiritual gifts. All Christians derive those gifts from the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the term charismatic is derived from the Greek word referring to spiritual gifts, which is charismata. So since all Christians believe in spiritual gifts, all Christians are in one sense charismatic. And I think that's one reason why the charismatic and non-charismatic labels have largely fallen out of popular use, just because they, they lack sufficient nuance to accurately describe what is actually believed by the various positions. And in their place, in the place of charismatic and non-charismatic, two other terms have come into greater prominence, continuationist and cessationist. Now let me explain what those two words mean. The most concise definition would be that cessationist, not cessation, like seceding from something, but cessation as in the stopping of something or the ceasing of something. The cessationist would believe that a certain, certain spiritual gifts um, have largely ceased. That's why they call it cessationism. They have ceased. They have largely stopped in a general biblical sense, while continuationists believe that these miraculous spiritual gifts continue. That's why they're called continuationists. They continue unabated throughout the church age and should be expected, pursued, and practiced in the church today. So the position that I'm going to argue for in this series is a nuanced form of cessationism, although I'm not a huge fan of the label for reasons I will explain as we go. So that's the reason for the series. Secondly, the positions in the church. Thirdly, my disposition on the issue. I want to say up front that a person's view on the role of miraculous spiritual gifts in the church today is not a first order matter. I don't believe this to be a matter along the lines of the Trinity or the inspiration and infallibility of the Bible or the person of Christ or justification by faith. At the same time, just because something isn't of first importance doesn't mean it is of no importance. We understand that. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. So Paul doesn't want us to operate indifferently toward the subject or be ignorant about the subject, and so our study does matter. It's part of God's revealed word and will that we should know and seek to obey. But I want to say that believers can disagree on this matter, and to the degree that they do, we need to continue to grow in the ability to have loving discussions with our Bibles open on where we differ without demonizing one another and without suggesting those who disagree with us are somehow less biblically informed or spiritually immature. We see in our, in, in our world today a profound lack of civil discourse, and this has bled over into the church, unfortunately. Just take a look at your social media feed and you'll see that well. But we can stand out as lights in a dark, uncivil world by, disagreeably, by disagreeing charitably and with kindness. To the degree that we can remain that way, I believe Christians who disagree on this issue can coexist in the same local congregation. Even though this issue invariably raises issues that affect the practice and the life of the local church. And some people believe that because of that, that it will inevitably create some form of division. That may be the case. However, while I fully endorse a peaceful dividing of some Christians over this issue for the sake of conscience, I don't believe it to be an inevitable necessity depending on how the church approaches and applies this issue in the congregation. I also want to acknowledge on the front end that I could be mistaken. 
So I concede up front that those who differ from me on this issue may see things more clearly than I do. Much like views on the practice of baptism, the matter isn't simple to resolve. If it were entirely clear, faithful, reformed, Christian believers would not come to different points of view. That said, I do believe my view to be the more biblically faithful one. Otherwise, I wouldn't make a case for it in this sermon or in the sermons to come. There is a part of me, though, that doesn't even want to preach on this issue, not because I'm fearful of opposition or tenuous in my views, but because it's so wearisome and tiring to engage in arguments with those we love and cherish. Some of my beloved friends inside and outside of our own church disagree with me on this, and I count them as dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Some pastor teachers I consider as valuable mentors whose writings I have on my shelf Men like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Sam Storms disagree with me on this issue. And I still read them, buy their books, and encourage others to read them. I even buy their books on positions that I don't agree with just to read them so I can understand their positions better. I have enormous respect and love for each of these men, and they have all influenced me in significant ways. So even though I disagree with them on this issue, I would happily be a member of the churches they attend or the churches they pastor. This is because even though I disagree with them, my biblically grounded continuationist brothers and sisters have much to teach me. Continuationists take the New Testament seriously. The spirit-empowered living, emotionally expressive worship, prayerfulness, missionary zeal, joy, and distinct supernaturalism of many continuationists are wonderful examples to the church of Jesus Christ. We need the power of the spirit in our churches. And as Baptists, we have something to learn. We may stifle or quench the Spirit so that our churches become lifeless and dead and boring. We need His joy and His power, and we need to pray that the Spirit will enliven us and awaken us and transform us. We desperately need Him every day and every hour. Also, lest anyone hear what I'm not saying, despite my belief that certain gifts have largely ceased to be the normal run-of-the-mill of things in the church of Jesus Christ right now. I'm not saying that God never performs miracles or supernatural works in the world today. Miracles and the expectation of ongoing miraculous gifting are different realities. The cessation of miraculous gifts is not the cessation of miracles. God did not lock himself out of his creation when the last apostle passed off the scene or when the last book of the Bible was written. I am not afraid of the supernatural. I am not afraid of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the personally present third person of the Trinity who has come into the world to regenerate dead sinners under the preaching of the gospel, to open spiritually blind eyes to behold the beauty of Christ, to illuminate our minds to understand the Scriptures, to lead us, to fill us, and to bear, bear, bear His fruit in and through us in an ongoing way in our lives. I do not believe that the Spirit is unable to speak through prophets today, but only that He has largely chosen not to. I do believe that the Spirit can and often does heal people in unexpected ways when we pray for them, and we should. I do believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to us personally through His Word. I do believe that He opens and closes doors for us and even arranges providential coincidences in our lives. We are called to relate to Him intimately, striving neither to grieve Him or quench Him 
Additionally, we must seek His power, seek His presence. We need desperately the empowerment of the Spirit for all of our lives, for our families, for our ministries, for our work lives, for our church lives. And we must welcome His holy influences in our lives as the Spirit of the living Christ. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit in an ongoing way. We are encouraged to pray for the Spirit. We must therefore eagerly seek more of the Spirit's work in our lives, families, and churches, for the Spirit is sent to counsel, to help, to comfort, to empower, and to equip us to glorify Christ in all things. So therefore, sign me up. I want more, not less, of the Holy Spirit. It's also possible, I want to say, in cutting-edge missionary situations, that the Lord may be pleased to do the signs and wonders granted in the apostolic era. I call myself a nuanced cessationist since I don't believe such experiences and events are what ordinarily takes place in the life of the church. Not that they never take place or don't take place, but rather that their ordinary operation during this era of the church is debatable. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. He can do whatever He wants, when He wants, and the way He wants. And I don't think we have any statement in the New Testament saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to stop doing this in 100 AD. God the Holy Spirit will build up His church and He will give all the gifts we need to that end. He is sovereign. We don't need to worry about it. We can seek the gifts that he, we believe that He has given, seek the edification of the church, and pray that God will glorify Himself. So that's where I am on that. And I hope it helps you orient you to kind of how I'm approaching the issue. Okay, so I've tried to explain the reason for the series, the two different positions that largely fall out, and kind of my disposition both in terms of my position on it and also the way I hold that position, which is I hope is a charitable and humble and Christ-like way to hold it, not an issue over which Christians necessarily need to divide. So that's the approach. Secondly, let's talk about analyzing the issue of miraculous gifts. Here's what I want to do. If you're going to critique somebody else's view, you need to read them extensively and quote them the way they would say, thank you for doing that. Thank you for fairly representing my view. And so this, what I want to do in the second point is give you the best case that I have read for the opposite position that I hold. Okay? And I'm trying to do that because I'm not only, I'm trying to model for us as a pastor the way we need to engage issues in our culture today. I am saddened and deeply hurt by the way Christians engage other people's views. They take the worst characteristics of other people, and this is on both the right and the left politically, and, don't, and, and even theologically, the church takes the worst possible caricatures of, the, of their opposite view and uses it to buttress their view when the other person would say, I don't even believe that. So we must fairly represent what other people believe, and I believe that any continuationist brothers or sisters in our congregation, which we have them, would affirm this second point in the way I'm representing them. I hope they would, and if not, come talk to me afterwards. So what I want to do in this second point is, in a nutshell, provide the essence of the continuationist argument, that is, that the gifts continue unabated throughout the church age, just as we read them in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, prophecy in tongues, whatever those mean. I'm not necessarily getting into the meaning of those things. That will be the next two sermons. Talk about prophecy, talk about tongues. But... Here's the gist of it. It's got three kind of core components. First of all, we should expect them to continue because we're living in the last days. Okay, we should expect them to continue. And that, I'm using the word last days. I'm going to use a big theological word, eschatologically. 
Eschatology is just the doctrine or the study of the last things. So the fact that we're living in the last days between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, we should expect these gifts to continue. And I'll give you the biblical justification for that in a moment. Secondly, historically, they did. And then thirdly, because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we should eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, you should do it. So that's the basic argument. We're living in the last days. It's promised and we should expect them to continue. They did historically. And we are commanded in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 to pursue these gifts. So I'm going to unpack that view. First of all, eschatologically or in, in terms of the last days between the first and second coming of Christ, we should expect these gifts to continue. What is the biblical justification for that? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 couple books back from 1 Corinthians. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. We know what happens prior to the preaching of his sermon. I'll start reading here in verse... I'll start reading here in verse 17. So what, what occurs before is 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 very important because we see um, tongues of fire coming to rest on people and then beginning to prophesy and 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 preach in in their own languages and in, in languages and Peter acknowledges this as a fulfillment of Joel chapter two we're going to begin reading here at ver- let's read begin reading at fourteen verse fourteen but Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. (laughs) He gives a timeline. He's like, hey, they're not going to get drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Come on. He wasn't living some places, but he was not expecting people to be drunk at 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he quotes Joel chapter 2 and says, this is what's, ha- this is what's happening there. This, this phenomenon is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Now read what Joel 2 says, verse 17. In the last days, it shall be. In the last days, that's a key phrase. In the last days, that's between the first and second coming of Christ. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my female servants, male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So that's the argument. So Joel 2 reveals a time to come when God's people, young and old, male and female, will prophesy, and Acts chapter 2 reveals that this prophecy and the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, including prophetic revelation, were given to the church in the last days on Pente- at Pentecost in fulfillment of Joel 2 and are to continue as long as the last days are present. The implication is that because we still live in the last days, which incorporate the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, prophecy will be an ongoing reality for the church. The eschatological age of the Spirit, which is the age in which we live, is accompanied by prophecies and signs and wonders and visions, and we still live in that eschatological age of the Spirit, so we should expect prophecies and signs and wonders and visions. And three other texts are often cited to buttress the argument. And I want to give those texts to you. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
where we read, when Paul gives thanks to God for the Corinthians, he reminds them of the following in verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not lacking in any charismata until the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the argument goes, the charismata are theirs while they wait for Jesus to be revealed. And they will continue with them, the argument goes, until Jesus is revealed. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says that Paul gave the gifts of pastors, teachers, apostles, and prophets and evangelists until we reach maturity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And since we haven't reached maturity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God yet, the argument goes, the gifts are still needed for that purpose, including, in some cases, the gift of apostleship. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10 is the final text, and that's the one, one that John read for us, but turn back there if you would. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And cessationists say, see... They will all pass away. But hold on. Hold on. Keep reading. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. This text is sometimes used by cessationists to argue that there will come a time when the gifts will cease. And that's certainly true. But continuationists are right to point out that the time for that to happen will be when, they, when we see God face to face. Paul believes in the cessation of the gifts, but he believes it will happen when the perfect comes and expresses that contrast in four ways. The partial versus the perfect, childhood versus maturity, dimness of sight versus clarity, and partial knowledge versus fullness of knowledge. So for Paul, the imperfect, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, will cease at the arrival of the perfect, that is the return of Christ, when we shall see him face to face. Therefore, the implication is that we should expect these gifts to continue until that point. And presumably, this is why we find these, more, these kinds of gifts listed alongside other gifts in the New Testament. Like in 1 Corinthians 12, 8-11, Paul lists the gifts of prophecy and tongues alongside gifts of teaching and administration. So does he not intend these gifts, just like teaching and administration, to just continue for their normal ministry in the church until Christ comes back? Also, Paul commends the gifts of tongues and prophecy in chapter 14 as edifying God's people. So we should not expect God to take away something that builds up the church, should we? So that is the argument from the last days, that we are living in that period and we should expect these things to continue until the second coming of Christ. Second point of the argument is that historically they did continue. Historically they did continue. Now I'm not going to spend very much time on this. But according to many in their reading of the early history of the church and the, who we call the church fathers, those were the leaders of the church living after the apostles, miraculous gifts continued beyond the death of the apostles. Now, I don't have time to get into the specifics, but Justin Martyr, for instance, claimed, quote, the prophetical gifts remain with us even to the present time, end quote. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, Basil, Cyril of Jerusalem, and Augustine recognized the presence of similar phenomena. So from a purely historical perspective then, the idea that the miraculous gifts suddenly stopped when the last apostle died is historically problematic. Thirdly, exegetically, or based on the, the text of Scripture, 
we would expect to, we should expect to eagerly desire them, especially prophecy. Prophecy, since Paul commands us and says we should. I want you to see First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse one: Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Look at verse thirty-nine of the very end of the chapter. He kind of buttresses the whole chapter in these exhortations. Verse thirty-nine. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. We also read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 that we are not to despise prophecy. This is a matter of divine command, just like the command to love one another. So given the clarity and the frequency of this command, not just in 1 Corinthians, but in Galatians, in First Thessalonians, in Romans, we would normally assume that the New Testament commands apply to us unless it's clear from the context that they don't. And continuationists believe that the burden of proof rests with people like me who say Paul's instructions don't apply to us in the same way that they applied to the Corinthians in the first century rather than to, rather than to those who say that they do. So the burden of proof rests with cessationists, not continuationists. So that's the basic argument. That's the, the kind of big picture argument from the last days, the historical argument from church history, and the sort of textual argument from 1 Corinthians 14 itself. So third point, addressing the issue of miraculous gifts. What I want to do is answer those three points. Okay, And I may convince you, and I may not. That's okay. All right, because as I said in the first point, this is my disposition on this issue is we can coexist together and love one another in the same body of Christ, even if we differ on this particular point. So I want to I want to answer the I want to go in reverse order. OK, I'm not going to take it from the I'm going to go from the first Corinthians 14 argument first. Then I'm going to go to the historical argument. Then I'm going to go with the argument about the last days. And my first point, I believe, will largely be the no third point will be the longest. I'll, I'll move through these uh, as quickly as possible. First of all, let's answer the textual or exegetical argument from 1 Corinthians 14. I mean, Paul says straight out at the beginning and the end of chapter 14, you are to earnestly desire the gift of prophecy and, and to prophesy. This is something that you desire. This is what, one of, what Paul calls one of the higher gifts. This is a gift that we should desire. So the matter of whether this gift of prophecy continues is complex. We have to consider the text itself, the entire history of the Bible, and theology, and we will do that in reverse order. So we, I want to make a distinction here between Paul's original meaning to, first, uh, to, the, to, the, to the church in the first century and its theological reception by us in the 21st century. Now, it is true that the New Testament nowhere says the gifts will come to an end except in 1 Corinthians 13, which is at the second coming. But the Scriptures do not engage in these kinds of abstractions since they don't address the circumstances that are facing the original readers. It is not at all surprising to me that the cessation of gifts wasn't specifically revealed to Paul or the other apostles, since such a revelation would be irrelevant to them during the lifetime of the apostles and the original lead, readers of the Pauline letters. We must reflect theologically upon what the word meant for the first readers and how we are to appropriate the same word today. Now, that doesn't mean we play fast and loose with the text. 
Okay, I'm not talking about, well, that can't, that's what Paul meant in the first century, and we don't believe that that day. That, he thought that way about sexuality. We don't think that way this day. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about specific phenomena that are occurring in the church that as we look around, we don't see all that often. So what are we to make of that? We're not talking about clear ethical issues here. Okay, we're talking about understanding the context in which 1 Corinthians was written and occurred in the time frame of the church and whether or not that should be expected to continue. So the Lord has preserved for us all the foundational teaching we need and what has come down to us in the scriptures we now have. In churches that did not have the complete New Testament, the words of prophets were super helpful. They supplemented the teaching of the apostles until the scriptures were consolidated and accepted by everyone in the church. The early churches needed orally transmitted, infallible, apostolic teaching and prophetic revelation before the scripture was completed so that they didn't stray from the gospel. Not all of that teaching was recorded and preserved for us. In fact, there's tons of New Testament prophecy that isn't recorded. But the early church needed it because they didn't have the scriptures yet. But all of that teaching was foundational for these particular churches, including Corinthians. Everything the apostles and the prophets taught was foundational for the churches that they established, even if they are not preserved for the church today. All New Testament prophecy functioned, along with all the teaching of the apostles, as the foundation for churches in the early church history, and all the authoritative teaching needed for us today is preserved in the Bible. Now, when James the Apostle is put to death in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, he's not replaced as an apostle. Paul is the last apostle of Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And there have been no apostles since Paul. The apostles were necessary in the first generation of the church to testify to Jesus Christ since the Christian movement was new. Now that the apostolic era has ended, and we have the faith handed down to us once for all in Scripture, and since there is no apostolic succession in the New Testament, we know this much, the gift of apostleship has ceased. So, if the gift of apostleship has ceased, might not others? I, I know that doesn't answer all the questions about things, because it certainly doesn't answer the, Paul's clear command of 1 Corinthians 14.1 to earnestly desire to prophesy. Should I earnestly desire the gift of prophecy today? I would give a qualified yes to that. But that's because I take biblical theological understanding of that and how I understand prophecy that was going on in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And here's the way I would take it. We have the prophecy that we are intended to receive in the scriptures. And so Paul's command to us would be to earnestly desire that earnestly desire the apostles' teaching, earnestly desire the prophetic teaching that has been written down for you. When we read the whole of Matthew's gospel, we recognize that when Matthew says in Matthew 10, verse 5, go nowhere among the Gentiles, that that doesn't apply to us in the same way it applied to them. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sending out missionaries. Okay? Because we live on the opposite side of the end of Matthew's gospel 
which is Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. So what Jesus said to them and there is different from what he says to us now. We have to engage in theological reflection to arrive at that. So we know that God gave prophetic revelation inside and outside of the scriptures in the first century to the first century church. And that was intended for the first century church to get established during the apostolic era. And therefore, I believe we shouldn't desire prophecy in the same sense God is calling the new the Corinthians to do so because we live on the far side of the apostolic era where the prophecy is largely ceased because it's been recorded in the scriptures for us. But what about the list of gifts, Pastor Mark? What do you say to these things that are presented alongside the normal gifts? Paul just lays them out as in the, in the gifts, the normal gifts alongside normal gifts. Why are you creating this bifurcation of miraculous and all that? that doesn't, Paul's not even introducing those categories. But I want you to remember the occasional nature of Paul's letters. That is, he wrote them to specific churches at specific times. We should be careful to pull out from Paul's gifts list a normative experience of the Spirit for all ages in all churches, since the list varies so greatly from one another in different letters. He's not intended to give an exhaustive list. He's giving a list that applies to that church in that moment. They don't all add up. Some phrases even seem to be similar, but not exactly the same because they're covering the same ground. I think all Paul is doing in describing a number of different things that is, is describing a number of different things the Holy Spirit was doing in that church at that time. And while God would never remove something good for his church that is needed, nothing prevents him from replacing that something with something better, does it? We have a fuller experience of the Spirit as he brings the complete revelation of God in his word to bear upon us as his people. Praise the Lord for the fullness of the Spirit that we have. We have everything the mind of the Spirit intended to give us. So some continuationists will acknowledge that the gifts and healings are not what they were in the apostolic times. So they can end up saying something like the following. Yes, God heals, but not dramatically or as often as he does in the New Testament. Yes, there's prophecy, but now there can be mistakes. Yes, there are tongues, but it isn't speaking in unknown languages. It's in a prayer language or an ecstatic utterance. It seems as if the gifts are redefined to fit current experiences. Most of the prophecies that I've even heard in, in worship gatherings that I've been a part of, of my continuation as friends, are rather general words of comfort and exhortation. When we hear such prophecy, prophecies, it seems that anyone who knows the scriptures well could offer the same advice without claiming the gift of prophecy. A significant problem, I, I believe, for continuationists is that the gifts as they are exercised today don't match New Testament descriptions, with, which supports the claim that the sign gifts don't exist today. Thus, the differences between the gifts exercised in the New Testament period and the gifts as they're exercised today raise questions about whether we're talking about the same thing. If a continuationist says that the gifts are operating today, but to a far inferior degree than what we see in the New Testament, then they seem to be saying that the gifts aren't operating as they did in the New Testament. And that sounds like a form of cessationism to me. So that's my argument for the exegesis. We have to consider, we have to consider not just what Paul says here, but what he intends the, the Corinthians to actually hear and what he intends us to, to hear in light of the fuller biblical revelation that is to come uh, in the rest of the New Testament. Second, historically, answering the historical argument. 
Now, there's a tacit acknowledgement inside the references that I mentioned before from Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Origen and Augustine in, in, those, in those references that I made to early church fathers. There's, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement inside of those references according to early church scholar Ligon Duncan that these manifestations of tongues and prophecies that were witnessed by the early church are different in nature from those in the New Testament. Additionally, all the church fathers that cite these examples do not claim to have the gift of tongues or prophecy themselves. They are reporting on phenomena that they are observing. They are not endorsing it. When you're reading also, when you're reading in the third and fourth centuries, Christians are aware that what seemed predominant in the first century in the New Testament did not seem as predominant um, in the churches that were going, that they were, that they were serving those days. It didn't seem to typify those churches. It also appears that these gifts gradually faded in use after the first four centuries since it took hundreds of years for the canon of Scripture to be established and accepted. That is, what is the Bible going to be? What, how's it going? What is it? What are the 66 Well, I didn't know 66 books at that time, but what is the Bible? And the gift of prophecy and presumably other gifts helped secure churches in the truth in the intervening period between the canon being accepted. So we can't draw a bright red line historically between the era when prophecy ceased and when the canon was fully established or the, the scriptures were completed. The transition was gradual and slow and probably imperceptible to those who lived during those times. Thus, we can't pinpoint the exact date prophecy ended. It faded away gradually as churches in different locations received the full scriptures. That's my historical argument. Thus... Instances of prophecy in the early church don't demonstrate that the gift is present today. References to prophecy in the early church don't prove prophecy exists today since the gift slowly faded over time. It took a considerable amount of time for the scriptures to be recognized and utilized in various church locations. And since the apostles and prophets served to lay the foundation of the church, and since that foundation is established, we look to the canon of scripture to hear God speak. As the epistle of Jude says in verse 3, the faith was delivered once for all to the saints. The final and definitive word has been delivered. And thus there is no need for apostles and prophets, nor do we necessarily and ordinarily need signs, wonders, and miracles to accredit the message. Those gifts serve the purpose of validating the message about Jesus during the early days of the church. And now that the apostolic foundation is laid, and scriptural revelation is complete, the miraculous gifts do not characterize the normal operational expectation of the church today. That's my historical argument. Thirdly, answering the eschatological argument. This is my final point. Answering the, the, what I believe is the strong, one of the strongest arguments um, from continuationists about um, the, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. The interpretation of Joel 2. Let's go back to that one time. Would you turn back with me to Joel chapter 2, and thanks for hanging in for what is no doubt a mentally taxing sermon, but we're almost finished. Um, Joel chapter 2 again. I just want to keep reading, okay? So we've read 17 and 18, where Peter identifies this phenomena as proceeding from the Holy Spirit as a fulfillment of Joel, but keep reading. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness 
the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Interestingly, verses 19 and 20 don't get as much press as verses 17 and 18 do. The interpretation of Joel 2, in my view, needs to take into account verses 19 and 20 as much as they take into account verses 17 and 18. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the fulfillment of Joel 2. I agree with that because I agree with Apostle Peter. I'm not going to challenge his regarding of that text. But the signs mentioned do not necessarily need to continue throughout the age in order for God to keep his promise in Joel 2. The promise is specifically tied in verses 19 and 20 to the day of the Lord, which in the Bible refers to the coming of Christ, not the entire age of the church. It's not the entire new covenant age that is necessarily in view just because the phrase last days is in view. Even in the apostolic age, Paul could ask rhetorically in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, are all prophets? Assuming that not all would be. Now, admittedly, I want to, I want to be fair here. Continuationists wouldn't say that promise is given so that, that all are prophets. It just says that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. It doesn't say everybody's going to prophesy. It says that some will. And so that's fair. But the point is, is that this, I believe, is indicating that there's not a universal expectation for Paul that all of God's people would prophesy. However, simply citing biblical texts back and forth doesn't prove the case. But we need to consider the entire biblical context in, its, in, its, in applying Scripture today. And here's the question I want to ask and bring to bear as I kind of move toward the end of this sermon. I want to step back and ask this fundamental question, which helps us immensely in this whole conversation. When you read Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of the Bible, are miraculous gifts an ongoing feature in the story of Scripture or not? Or to put it differently, where do we see the presence of miraculous gifts in the storyline of the Bible? My belief, my contention, my argument is that they are periodic and not an ongoing phenomenon. The way Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 puts it is God revealed himself at different times and in different ways, in different seasons. And here's my point. When God is bringing new revelation of himself to his people, when he is revealing something new that he intends to both be written down and not written down, that's up to him. He employs extraordinary methods like prophecy and tongues to deliver that revelation and extraordinary signs like miracles to confirm them and to, to determine who we should receive as inspired deliverers of that revelation. God gave an abundance of miracles during the age of the apostles to authenticate the preaching of the mystery of Christ during which times 1 Corinthians was written. So when God is not delivering new revelation in the scriptures, he does not use extraordinary methods and signs. Rather, he works through the exposition of his special revelation he's already given in the scriptures by gifted teachers he's raised up. That's the way it works in the storyline of the Bible. Not every generation sees firsthand his miraculous power, but instead are called to remember what he has done. Read Psalm 77. Some of God's saints throughout history say, as they did in Psalm 74, 9, we do not see our signs, 
There is no longer any prophet and there is none among us who knows how long. Biblical history shows that God has chosen to concentrate His miracles in certain periods of history. Miracles were not everyday occurrences during biblical times. They happened only or largely when God was giving new revelation to His people that would be written down. So looking at Scripture as a whole, we see three great periods in which miracles were flowing from the throne of God. During the eras of Moses, during the days of Elijah and Elisha, and during the days of Jesus and the apostles. New special revelation from God characterized each one of those periods. Moses received the law and was made mediator of the old covenant, and it was accompanied with lots of miraculous activity. Elijah and Elisha were representing the foundation of the prophets and their role in the life of the people of God. And so many of the oracles that the prophets gave were written down under new revelation by God himself. And then Jesus and the apostles instituted the new covenant and provided additional instruction that was necessary for the new covenant era in which we live. Given that even biblical miracles were so limited, there is no reason to expect that there will be people in every generation who are gifted to do miracles the same way. From a surface reading of redemptive history as it unfolds in the Bible, it's evident that he wills to pour out many miracles in some seasons of history, but fewer miracles in other seasons. And I don't think he's done pouring them out. I just think it's going to come near the second coming of Christ. That's the pattern we see. God does a great saving act in the world, like the exodus or the exile or sending Jesus. Then God inspires prophets before and after to interpret and explain to his people the significance of his action. And do you see why I, see, I don't have any problem with what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14? I just don't expect that to be the case now because of the era in which we're living. Why did miracles accompany all of these? Why did miracles accompany Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and the apostles and the early church? Well, miracle working power was largely given to all of them to prove that they were sent from God with a divinely revealed message. Hebrews 2.4 says, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So when God questions Moses as to whether people will believe that the Lord has sent him, God empowers him to work miracles. He says, throw that staff down on the ground and then grab that snake by the tail. Then what does God say? But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail that they believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. That's why. We see the same reality play out in the ministry of Elijah. When he raised the widow's child from the dead, 1 Kings 17, 24, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. When Elijah cried out to God to send fire down upon the altar at Mount Carmel, he prayed, 1 Kings 18, 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I'm your servant, and I have done all things at your word. In other words, prove it, God. Show that you're God. The same pattern appears in the Gospels concerning the ministry of Christ. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's the argument. That's why he did it, because God was with him. See? 
The purposes of Christ's miracles were to serve as a verifiable sign to his claims to be God's son. John 5.36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 10, 25 and 37 and 38, Jesus answered, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am in the father. He's making the same argument that Moses and Elijah would have made. The miraculous gifts played a particular role in redemptive history in accrediting the ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why Peter begins his sermon In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, after quoting the prophet Joel, saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And this pattern continued after Christ was exalted through the ministry of the apostles. The apostles and those closely associated with them performed signs and wonders and miracles to confirm the gospel they proclaimed until the scriptures were completed. Acts chapter 2, verse 43, and, we, and awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle, Paul says, were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Even in the book of Acts, most miracles took place by the hands of the apostles, so the people sought them out, not just Christians in general, to receive healing. Look at Acts chapter 5. Since most miracles reported in the New Testament were recorded to work through the apostles, not just through the apostles, as we see in 1 Corinthians, for instance, we should expect that the frequency of miraculous gifts would be significantly less today. Remember that the Corinthians still had living apostles among them. Acts chapter 2, then, records a unique moment in redemptive history. And I believe 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 reveals a unique moment in redemptive history. God had done a great saving work in Christ. And he is interpreted by his Holy Spirit as the Spirit was poured out on the witnesses of that act to interpret for us what God had done in history. From what God has revealed, the next great saving act is his return. And guess what? He's already prophesied it. So we shouldn't expect prophecy to continue beyond those events because we have the whole swath of biblical history telling us not to expect it to continue. Unless God is going to do something different, which he's free and totally free to do. I am not the Lord. He's got something else planned for the church age. And he's free as a sovereign God to do that. But that's not the expectation that I believe he gives us in Scripture. Therefore, we are justified, I think, of speaking of distinct times for the purposes of authenticating the messengers of his revelation in which God chooses to work a much greater concentration of miraculous activity than he ordinarily does. God's people have gone centuries without a prophet at various times in history. But God did not stop speaking to his people. He spoke to them through the word that they already had. God did not speak to his people by prophets, at least by prophets as we normally conceive of them, from Abraham to Moses. Moreover, first century Jews recognized that the Lord sent no prophets during the four centuries between Malachi and John the Baptist. Yet God was at work in those eras. And brothers and sisters, he is at work in ours. There is not, this is not, hear me, the imposition of a cessationist model upon the Bible. It is a valid conclusion from how I read the Bible as the Bible. It's a valid conclusion, I believe, that needs a necessary answer. And a careful reading of biblical history would lead us to that position. Now, let me conclude. Do I believe that the Holy Spirit is somehow less powerfully at work. No, 
Not at all, because I don't believe 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 to be the height of his power. I don't believe, I don't think the New Testament teaches us that. I think the New Testament teaches us the height, and, and Paul even alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. The greatest evidence of the Spirit is love. And that's what he's pushing them toward. The greatest evidence is the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life. That's the miracle that people become loving and joyful in Christ and peaceful and patient and kind and gentle and faithful and self-controlled. Behold the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is way greater than the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because as I said a couple of weeks ago, gifts can be manufactured. The devil can reproduce that kind of stuff. And he did. And he does. That's why we're called to be warned about false prophets that come performing counterfeit miracles. But he can't produce the fruit of the Spirit. He can't make somebody a genuine Christ lover. (laughs) Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So brothers and sisters, behold the fruit of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit in your life. Behold the, the work of the Holy Spirit in each other's lives. The Holy Spirit is alive and well. And He's continuing to move in power through the preaching of His Word to save, sanctify, and fill the world with the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. Lord, this is a difficult issue that we try to wrestle through uh, biblically, and faithfully. Lord, we, we likely some among us will even come to different conclusions on that. And I thank You for my brothers and sisters who search your word and seek to be faithful to it. And I thank you for the spirit with which we can engage these sorts of conversations, knowing that we're doing so with Bibles open. We want to learn from one another. We want to be humble. We want to listen. We want to hear the best arguments we can and think those things through. So spirit, would you guide us into all truth? Anything that I've said that is outside of your will or your word, would you just dispense and not allow to have any effect on our hearts. Father, I do take seriously my call to teach your people faithfully. I do take seriously the reality that a stricter judgment will be given. And Lord, I do not want in any way to quench what your spirit desires of your people in our age. So Lord, lead us. Lead us through our fallible understandings. We see through a glass darkly, but one day we will see face to face. And we thank you so much that 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 day is closer now than when we first believed and our salvation is near. So Lord Jesus, as we've already prayed in this service, come quickly, hear our prayers, fill us us afresh this morning for a new week of serving you and your power by the strength that you supply so that everything in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand.